All right. Well, good morning. Good to see everyone this morning. A little bit of a wrinkle with the hour difference last night. So uh, if people start coming in here in about 20 minutes or so, we'll know that uh, they didn't get the memo. But uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we are continuing on in our study of this gospel, this gospel of John that was written by the Apostle John, the same author who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. And we are marching through, we are in the middle of a story, and it is the story of Jesus and his encounter with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And so last week, we looked at the first part of that story. We looked at verses 1 through 26. And of course, we don't have time to review all of the details of that encounter. But in case you weren't with us last week, let me just offer a quick recap to bring everyone up to speed. So just to set the stage as to where we are in this story, Jesus was traveling with his disciples. They're on their way back from Judea to the region of Galilee. And as you can imagine, this was a long and grueling trip, some 70 miles in length. And so as they're traveling back to Galilee, they stopped in a town named Sychar in Samaria. And this was the location of Jacob's legendary well, which at that time would have been a couple of thousand years old. Jesus stays at the well while his disciples go into the city to get some food. And while Jesus is sitting by the well, a Samaritan woman comes to draw some water. And as we said last week, any sort of a verbal exchange would have been highly unusual because men generally didn't speak to women in public and Jews didn't engage the Samaritans because they were viewed as the dregs of society. But Jesus doesn't care about societal norms. He cares about the souls of people. And so he engages her, and they have this conversation, and that conversation ends with Jesus revealing to this Samaritan woman that he was indeed the long-promised Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God. And so this is where we pick up the story here in verse 27 of chapter 4. Verse 27 At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, and yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? And so the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out to the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruits for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. 
From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. And so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So as we look through the passage this morning, I want to give you four pivotal points of this riveting account. Again, this is a part two to what we considered last week as we looked at verses 1 through 26. Four pivotal points as we learn the rest of this riveting account. And the first is the timing of the disciples' return. The timing of the disciples' return. Verse 27, at this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, and yet no one said, what do you seek? Or, or what do you speak with her? You know, this is all very interesting. And there's much more here than meets the eye. Jesus finishes up his conversation with the Samaritan woman, and just as he does, his disciples return from the city with food. And this is a reminder that the Lord is not just sovereign over events. He is sovereign over the timing of events. Perfect example. This past fall, our daughter, Allison, was married to her longtime boyfriend, Lucas, in a beautiful ceremony here at the church. Leading up to the wedding, Lucas had flown up from Florida to Pennsylvania to attend Allison's wedding shower, which was also here at the church. On the way home, it just so happens that he was seated on the plane next to a woman who was also traveling back home to the Jacksonville, Florida area. On this two-hour flight, they began to visit with one another, and Lucas thought that it would be a golden opportunity to talk with this woman about the Lord, and so he does. It turns out this lady and her husband were Christians, and during the course of their conversation, she invited Lucas to attend their church in Jacksonville. So that next Sunday, Lucas goes to that church, and he calls Allison to tell her about it. He absolutely loved it. The pastor, who was a master's seminary graduate, preached an expository message, and the church was extremely welcoming to him. When Allison arrives back to her apartment in Jacksonville, she attends the same church the next Sunday. That lady from the airplane and her husband invite Allison and Lucas over to their home for dinner, and over time, they become like surrogate parents to our daughter and her husband. After knowing this older couple for just three or four months, that same couple traveled all the way to Pennsylvania to attend Allison and Lucas's wedding, along with another precious couple from that church. Oh, while Kathy and I were passing through Jacksonville on our way home from the conference in January, we also attended that church that Allison and Lucas attend. Turns out the pastor and I have numerous mutual friends, that same couple hosted Kathy and I for lunch after church that day. And so we asked the question, was all that just coincidence? This lady just happened to travel to Pennsylvania at the same time as Lucas. She just happened to book the same flight on the same airplane, and on a large airplane full of two or three hundred people, just happened to be seated next to Lucas. 
and they just happened to strike up a conversation. Was all of that just a chance meeting, a coincidence of some sort, or is God sovereignly in control of all things? And not just that he superintends events, but he superintends the timing of events, the details of every event, and the outcome of every event. And in the same way that God superintended the exact timing of all that I just shared about the plane ride, he superintended this encounter that Jesus has with this woman at the well and the exact timing of the disciples' return. So they get back to the well, they have the food that they got from the city, and they see that Jesus had been engaging with this woman And while they were amazed by it, they trusted Jesus. They didn't question him about it. They knew Jesus. They had a history with him. They they had watched his faithfulness in situations like this before. Sure, all the disciples knew that men didn't generally speak with women in public. Sure, they all knew that most likely this was a Samaritan woman. But they assumed the best and they trusted Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. So speaking of timing, I meant to mention last week, which just adds to the story, that most likely this woman had come to the well at this particular time of the day because it was hot. Remember, it was the sixth hour, six hours after sunrise. And most people would visit a well, they would do so in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening, not in the heat of the day. And so this Samaritan woman who was an outcast and considered a, uh, a, you know, a drag on society, she comes, because she's a Samaritan woman, she comes to the well at the exact time that Jesus is there. Talk about a divine appointment. This leads us then to verses 28 through 30 and another pivotal point in the story And it's the testimony of the Samaritan woman. The testimony of the Samaritan woman. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out to the city and they were coming to him. Most likely, again, speaking of timing, most likely the disciples had arrived back at the well at the very moment that Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that he is indeed the Messiah. Verse 28 begins with this woman in such a hurry to go into the city and to tell others that she has has met the Messiah that she leaves her water pot behind. Now we're not told here in the text, but remember Jesus didn't have a bucket So perhaps leaving her water pot behind was the way that Jesus would have quenched his thirst. We're not told here about that in particular, but it makes sense. But catch this here. Following the lead of Jesus, this woman throws all the stereotypes and cultural norms out the window, and she enters into the city. Remember, the Samaritans were like hidden people in society. They were outcasts. They were looked at with disdain. And so she throws all that out the window, and she she goes into the city. She's as excited as you can possibly get, and she engages with the townspeople about who she believes is the long-promised Messiah. 
she gets the townspeople all stirred up. And so much so that they want to see for themselves. And so they, they gather together to go out and to meet Jesus. And this leads us then to verses 31 through 38 and the teaching of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did they? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look out onto the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered their labor. But if we've learned anything about Jesus and what we've seen in his three-year public ministry, it it, he, he turns the physical, he, he turns physical happenings into an opportunity to speak spiritual truth. You, you remember the disciples had gone into the city to get food, and so they encouraged Jesus to eat something, but instead he begins to teach them. He says in verse 32, I have food that you don't know about. And as usual, the disciples were not totally on board. They were a bit confused. And so they seek some clarification from Jesus, asking if he had eaten any of the food that they had just brought back from the city. And they look at one another and they ask each other, did you see him eat anything? And they're all confounded because they have no idea what Jesus is talking about. They had not seen him eating anything. And yet he's talking about this food that they don't know anything about. Was Jesus carrying a satchel that had snicker bars and three musketeer bars and Cheetos and Fritos and what is going on? Well, Jesus then replies that his food is to do the will of the Father who sent him to the earth for a specific purpose. You see, if we've learned anything in our study of the book of John, it's that Jesus is always on task, right? He's always on task. What a contrast with us. We are so easily distracted. The other day, I was studying at my home office and realized that I didn't have a particular book that I needed, and so I drove over to the church office here to get my book. When I got here, I got a couple of phone calls. I sorted through the mail, talked with some folks who were here at the church, and then I headed back home. When I got back down to my home office, where I do most of my studying, I realized that I had forgotten the book that I originally went to the church to get. You see, we can become so distracted. I had one purpose. It was come to the church for five minutes to get my book, to head home, and I got these calls, and I talked with these people, and I went through the mail, forgot the book. 
But Jesus never got distracted. He was always on mission. He was always on point. He was always focused on the task at hand, which was to accomplish the will of the Father. Jesus makes this quite evident. Let's just fast forward a little bit, okay? So if you're there in John 4, you can keep your finger there, but go with me to John chapter 5 and verse 19. John chapter 5 and verse 19. Verse 19 says, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. Look down at verse 30 of the same chapter. Chapter 5 and verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of he who sent me. And then flip over to chapter 6 and verse 38. Verse 38 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Now, we know what he's talking about here, right? We know that he's talking about the love gift of those whom the Father had chosen before the foundation of the world, whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life, had been given to Jesus to come to the earth to die in the place of all those people, Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is consistent. Is he not? He's consistent with what he says. He says, and he is committed to the fact that he has come to do the will of the Father. Whatever that is, whatever it was that Jesus and the Father had worked out before the foundation of the world, Jesus was sent to the earth to come to do the will of the Father. For God so loved the world, mankind, so he loved mankind so much that he sent Jesus Christ to come to the earth to die in the place of sinners, to provide eternal life for all who would believe in him. Jesus was always on point. He was never distracted. He would have never have come over to the church. First of all, he would have would, would had the book with him, but he would never have come over to the church and gotten distracted from his mission and then went home without the book. Jesus was always on point. He was always on task. He was always on mission. So would we think any less of him that he would tell us that it is our responsibility to also do the will of the Father? And that's exactly what he tells us. So again, keep your finger in John chapter 4, and let's go back to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, one of the most daunting passages in 
the entire New Testament. Matthew chapter 7. And you know that the great Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so this is right towards the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that was preached on what's known as the Mount of the Beatitudes. And so Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And so there's going to be a multitude of people who think that they're going to enter the kingdom of heaven because of some reason outside of God's prescription that someone must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And Jesus says that the evidence of that is that they will do the will of my Father. Go with me across to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 46. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 46 says, While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. I've always wrestled with that. I've always wrestled with that passage. Because it seems to me, it seems to me that there is a diminishment of the biological family. Have you ever read it that way? He, he, he's not putting all of his stock in his biological family. And if you want to ask me what I think is wrong with much of society today is that we turn a blind eye to our own biological families because they're our blood we let them get away with whatever they want to get away with. Parents not disciplining their children because they're biologically related to them. It's all about the family. And, and I'm, all, I'm all for family. We just met last night for a birthday party for our granddaughter, Josie. She turned two, and it was a fun time. And we were all together. But I've, I've always been intrigued by this because Jesus doesn't seem to put a lot of stock in his mom and doesn't seem to put a lot of stock in his brothers. Oh, he loved them, I'm sure. He had a relationship with them, I'm sure. But he didn't have all of his stock in his biological family. It almost seems to me that he has more stock in the family of God. Do you see that here? Hey, the ones who do the will of my father, this is my mother, these are my brothers. I don't think we can go too far with that, 
But it's always been intriguing to me. Because if Jesus was all about his biological family, boy, he would have put them at the top of the list. And instead he goes, no, they're not even my mother and my brothers. It's the ones who do the will of my father who are my mother and brothers. Be careful with putting too much stock in the temporal. I think that's the point. In the earthly, in our earthly families. And that's anathema. I know to some of you, you're thinking, I cannot believe he's saying that. But it seems to me that Jesus is a pretty good example here of what he's saying. Some people put their family before everything. Their biological family. They put their, their biological family before anything and everything. And I don't think that's right. I don't think it's right. I think we are to put our God before our biological families. And whatever it is that he wants, and that's the point, the, the, ones, that are, the ones that are my family are the ones who do the will of my Father. And that's why we put so much stock in the church. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that should mean something. You don't just throw that away. Move on because you don't get your way. That's not what we do. We're family. We're the family of God. And we're to do the will of the Father. So hopefully your finger is still in John chapter 4. Let's go back there. The point of it is, is that Jesus is always on point. Jesus is always on task. He's always going about his father's business. You look at verses 35 through 38 here. So per perhaps they're in eyeshot of a field of crops. And Jesus was very visual. So he would see these physical things and he would turn them into spiritual truth. And so perhaps they see this, 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 this field of crops. And so he uses an agricultural object lesson here to teach the disciples an important lesson. He essentially says to them, don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. The fields are white unto harvest now. Get busy reaping the harvest. In other words, the, the world is full of those who need to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus. It doesn't matter who sows and who reaps. What matters is they need to get busy proclaiming that the Messiah has come. People need to know that they are to turn to him, to believe in him, to repent of their sin and trust in him. The Apostle Paul spoke of this very same illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, when he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now the one who plants and the one who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. It, again, we see the, the, the sovereignty of God in the salvation of the souls of men. We have a responsibility to plant the seed of the gospel and even water the seed after someone else has planted the seed. But none of us have the capability 
to make the seed grow, right? Only God can cause a seed to grow. And this is a reminder that we are simply to be faithful with giving others the gospel. That's all we can do. We cannot coerce someone into receiving the gospel message. We cannot twist an arm to make somebody believe. We can only be faithful with giving out the powerful gospel message, and it is God who appropriates it to the hearts of those whom he chooses through the Spirit of God who convicts of sin and draws man to himself. All we can do is be faithful with giving others the gospel. there's, There's a comfort with that, I think. I think there's a comfort with that because we're not held responsible for another person's belief. We're held responsible for telling people the truth of the gospel, right? We're not responsible for those who receive. We're responsible for the delivery of the message. And so this brings us then to the transformation of the Samaritans. Number four, the transformation of the Samaritans. First, in verse 27, we saw the timing of the disciples' return. Second, in verses 28 through 30, we find the testimony of the Samaritan women. uh, woman. And then third, in verses 31 through 38, we found the teaching of Jesus. And now fourth, here in verses 39 to 42, we find the transformation, the transformation of the Samaritans. Verse 39, from that city, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I've done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one, capital O, this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Wow. I mean, think about all that's transpired in this this encounter. Jesus reveals to the Samaritan woman that he is indeed the Messiah, right? That, in just a short period of time, has translated it now to the Samaritans or the people in the city to come out and say, you, you are the one who is the Savior of the world. You see how God works and how quickly he can work in the hearts and minds of people. It's almost like the light bulb came on and they see him. They see him for who he is. And that's what happens in salvation. And this is a work of God. This is a work of the Spirit. He opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. We see Jesus for who he is. We see us for who we are. You've heard the term illumination, right? illumination. It's a ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit illuminates His Word. What does that mean? Well, some have said that illumination is that God, through the Spirit, gives us the interpretation of the Bible. That's not what illumination is. 
Why would we need to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, if we didn't need to rightly divide the truth? And if we can rightly divide it, we can wrongly divide it. That's not what illumination is. That's not a work of the Spirit. So the Spirit doesn't tell us what the Bible means. We wouldn't need to study it. We wouldn't need to pour over it. And if we all had the same Spirit, which we do, and the same illuminating work of the Spirit, we would all have the same understanding, right? But we don't. We don't. How many denominations are there in the world today? One Spirit, if it was the work of the Spirit to illuminate the Bible, and that meant that He would tell us what the Bible means, we'd all have the same understanding. And we don't. So that's not what illumination is. That's not what illumination means. Illumination is a, indeed a work of the Spirit where He makes God's Word applicable and understandable from the moment of conversion. So, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins, right? We're darkened. We have no spiritual sight. We don't, we can read the Bible as an unbeliever, but we don't understand how it applies to us. That's what illumination is. That's what happens in illumination is the Spirit of God allows us then to see how the Bible applies to us. Not just in how it applies to who Jesus is, but how it applies to who we are as sinners, right? So that's all a part of the conversion process where we see who we are. Remember when you were saved? You saw who you were. Before, you didn't see it. You didn't know. You didn't know. You thought you were pretty good. You compared yourself to your neighbor or your classmate in school, and I'm, a, I'm better than him. I'm better than her, for sure. And so as if God weighs on a scale or he grades on a curve, what happened was your eyes were open to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You saw yourself for who you were, a sinner, a rotten sinner, vile person who violated the law of God repeatedly. That's what happens. The Spirit of God opens our eyes like all these things are, are new to us. That is amazing what he does. That's what happened to these guys. That's what happened in short order to the Samaritans. There was this transformation. So the, the Samaritan woman, she goes into the city, she tells everyone what she heard and witnessed from Jesus. This is the evidence that we're looking for. This is the evidence that she's been regenerated. Her cold, dead heart has been awakened and she follows Jesus. The folks from the city, they want to see and hear the same thing that she heard and saw, and so they asked Jesus to stay with him. Now remember, these people are Samaritans. They are outcasts. Considered by the Jews as the dregs of society. So how does Jesus respond how does he respond? Is he uppity? Does he try and big time them? No. He cares about them. 
He cares about him. He loves him enough to stay with him for an additional two days. As a result, verse 41, many more believed in him. And they confirmed this by saying that they were originally very intrigued by all that the Samaritan woman had shared, but now they believe because they had heard and seen for themselves that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. Full stop. Full stop. What do they mean when they say that Jesus is the Savior? Well, Savior is the Greek word soter, and the word soter comes from the Greek word sozo, which means to rescue from destruction. To rescue from destruction. And so hold on to that definition, okay? Hold on to that. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to that because I first want to remind us that every soul is precious in the sight of God. Every single one. Every person has equal value in the sight of God because according to Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Our value is not based upon our performance or our country of origin or our perceived exceptionalism. It's based upon our relationship with our Creator. Every person, Jew or Gentile, is created in the image of God. When Moses says that all men and women are created in the image of God, what does he mean by that? Well, he means through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that every created person possesses the same basic components of personhood that God possesses, which can be put into three categories, intellect, emotions, and will. God has revealed himself to man as the great three-in-one, right? That's why God is referred to as a trinity from the Latin word trinitas, which means three-in-one. Well, Deuteronomy 6.4 tells us that God is one. In other words, there is but one God. That one God has revealed himself in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. So we are monotheists, one God. But each member of the Godhead possesses those three components, intellect, emotions, and will. And in that way, we are created in his image. And so every person has equal value. Again, why do I say this? Because these were Samaritans. They were Samaritans. And the the Jews didn't believe they had equal value. In, In fact, they believed they had no value. That's why Jesus rejected this supposed class system, that the Samaritans are somehow less than the Jews. This is one of the reasons the Pharisees despised Jesus, because he broke down all their self-righteous barriers. The point is, everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. Every person you see at the grocery store, at the department store, at the gas station, at the doctor's office, wherever you go, that person has value because he's created in the image of God. And that person needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. So that's why we need to be indiscriminate in our proclamation of the gospel. No personal favoritism. No preferred gender. No preferred country of origin, no preferred ethnicity, skin color, whatever it is. No. 
Every person needs Jesus. What is it that is, is specifically that every person needs from Jesus? Let's circle back to Jesus being the Savior. Savior from what? Savior from destruction. Savior from the due penalty of man's sin. Left alone, man would die in his sins. But Jesus is the great rescuer from the destruction that we all deserve because of our sin. So God is both gracious and merciful. Grace is God giving us that which we do not deserve. Mercy is God giving us that, is not giving us that which we do deserve. Both are wrapped up in this passage in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. So these Samaritans acknowledge that Jesus is indeed the only Savior of the world. Now, remember the word world. It's all over the Gospel of John. It's the Greek word cosmos. We see it here again in verse 42. This word is used over and over and over in the Gospel of John. And you remember it has many different meanings. Some say up to eight different meanings. Just for the one word. And so we remember what we said, when a word has many different meanings, it's the context that helps to determine what the word means. So obviously these Samaritans are not saying that Jesus is the Savior of every single person in the world. Right? That would be universalism. And John the Baptist already debunked that notion back in chapter 3 in verse 36 when he said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So clearly, not everyone will be saved because John the Baptist foretold that all who reject Jesus will receive exactly what they deserve, which is God's wrath. That's why this is so serious. That's why this is so serious. That's why he's telling them that the fields are white unto harvest, ready to be picked. God's ready to do a work. He has decided to use people to spread his message. So get busy. Go get busy. Go tell people about Jesus. He's right over there. Clearly, not everyone will be saved. So when, when the Samaritans say that Jesus is the Savior of the world, here's what they mean. Because the Samaritans were not Jews, remember the context. Remember who the Samaritans are. Because they were not Jews, they are acknowledging that salvation is available to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Not just the Jews. The whole world. Jesus is the Savior to the whole world. Remember the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples. Everyone needs Jesus. Let me just show you one other example here as we close things down today. If you would, go with me back to 1 John. Again, written by the same author, the Apostle John. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. 1 John chapter 2. 
if you're struggling with the, the assurance of your salvation, read 1 John. That's why it was written. It's what, that's what John said in 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so read 1 John. That's why it was written. But we see here in 1 John chapter 2 at the beginning here, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus is our advocate, seated at the right hand of the Father. He's our advocate before the Father. He has redeemed us. And so he is our advocate. But notice in verse 2, and he himself, meaning Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What does propitiation mean? It means that Jesus' death on the cross of Calvary satisfied God's anger, his wrath against sin. Is that the case for every single person? Some would translate this, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but every other person in the world. Jesus has propitiated their sin. No, he hasn't. That's contradictory to the rest of Scripture. He's talking about those from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He's talking about mankind in general there. Jesus is the propitiation for all who believe, for sure. He died in the place for all who would believe, but not everyone will believe. Not everyone did he satisfy God's wrath. You remember what we just read in John 3.36 about what John the Baptist said. Those who don't believe will receive the wrath of God. So you see how the word world is used over and over and over again. As I mentioned, the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. Why? Everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. And everyone who believes upon Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord will be saved, which means they will be rescued from destruction. And so we look at the domino effect here. Look at the domino effect. And that's what I use dominoes for, setting them up and just pushing that one and they all go down. I never knew how to play dominoes. I still don't know how to play dominoes. We were somewhere the other day at someone's house and they said, hey, you want to play? I have no idea how to play dominoes. No idea. It was just a for me. But I understand what the domino effect is. It's when you push the first one, they all go down, right? And, and, and the, the first one was pushed by Jesus when he was with the woman at the well. So Jesus has this divine appointment with this one immoral Samaritan woman. She comes to faith in him. She goes and she tells everyone about him. And as a result, a whole slew of other Samaritans believe in him too. Folks, it is amazing to watch God work. It is amazing. If you truly have been regenerated by the Spirit of God and you have been converted, you have trusted in Christ, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. That's miraculous. What has happened there is miraculous. And what's happened in our lives 
miraculous. This is Jesus. This is who he is. He loves us. He wants to extend his grace and his mercy to us. And he wants to use us to spread the gospel message because the fields are white unto harvest. Our job, not to save a soul, be faithful in the proclamation of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for your word. We are amazed by it. We're amazed by you. We're amazed by Christ. We're amazed at what we read and what we understand and what you're saying and all of these things. It's it's remarkable that you would want to have anything to do with us at all. And yet you do. It's, It's amazing that Jesus would want to have anything to do with these Samaritan people, and yet he stays with them for an additional two days because he loves them. He cares for them. May we be more like him. May we be more like Jesus. If there's anyone here today that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, that you would reach down deep into their heart, turn their hearts of stone into a heart of flesh. May they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be saved from destruction, from your wrath that you must pour out on those who do not believe in Jesus, those who reject Him as the single source of salvation. Our Father, do a work in all of our hearts today. We thank You and praise You in the name of Jesus.